There's an um, incredible description of a reunion between two friends in this chapter. And I'm not sure that I've ever particularly thought about it like that, apart from the last couple of weeks as I've uh, been reading through the book of Revelation again, but it occurred to me, maybe in a way that it hadn't before, that this was a reunion between two friends. So in Revelation chapter 1, we read that John, in verse 9... Uh, was on the island of Patmos. John, the disciple of Jesus. In fact, as the Gospels describe him, a disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, of course, he loved all his disciples. But he had a special relationship with John. They were close friends. And now John is an old man. Jesus has long gone back to the Father. I remember the time we read the disciples standing after his resurrection and there they are on the mountaintop and right before their eyes, Jesus ascends to the Father. And they're staring, looking up into heaven. Remember what happened? An angel came and he said, why why do you look? He'll come again, he will. But that had been years ago, and now John was an old man, and John had been banished, exiled to the island of Patmos for his faith and for the witness to the hope that he had in his friend, Jesus. We read from verse 9 that says, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God And the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He's worshipping. And I heard a loud voice behind me. Like a trumpet. Saying write on a scroll what you see. And send it the seven churches. And he names them. Verse 12. And then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow. And his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace. And his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand, a double Sharp, double-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell out of his feet like a dead man. 
When I read that through the last week or so, it struck me what a strange response maybe we would think that is for John to have been reunited once again with his very dear friend, Jesus. Sure, Jesus, as he appears before John, now probably looked very different to how John remembered Jesus when they sat around a fire together or when they broke bread and ate fish together or when they were walking between the north and the south of the country or when he was walking amongst the masses and healing or when they were in fear after his death. I'm sure all of those memories long distant for John now seems so different to what he saw standing before him, but nonetheless, this was Jesus, his friend. And I wondered why, why did he, in verse 17, say, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. As we read through the book of Revelation, we, we read a lot more about this son of man, this Jesus who comes the one whose eyes are fierce like fire, who peer right through. They see the beginning from the end. They judge all things. And I wonder, I wonder if John, even though he was so close to Jesus, his friend realized that those same eyes that were going to see through all the activities of this world, all the pretense of this world, all the governments of this world also saw straight through him. I wonder if John became very aware of his own shortcomings or his own failures or his own own sin. I don't know. I think I would have. What about you? If, If you stood in front of Jesus like that, We sing songs about coming face to face with Jesus, but I I read my Bible and I wonder every time someone comes face to face with God, how many of them did what John did? Fall on his face like a dead man. Something about being judged, about being exposed, that, that terrifies us. And last week... We started talking about judging and we're going to finish talking about that today. We're going to do that from the book of 1 Corinthians. So go back to 1 Corinthians and as you're doing that I want to pray. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 we're going to revisit. Lord, as we read your word, as we've thought about John's revelation, the way that you appeared before him, his reaction to that. Lord, we by faith this morning stand before the piercing gaze of your word. And Lord, it penetrates, it cuts into places that are well guarded, that we keep locked away from the rest of prying eyes. But we realize this morning that you pierce through all of that. You see us for who we are. Lord, teach us through your word this morning, we pray. 
Amen. I'm not going to start from the beginning of the sermon that we started last week, but I do want to recap it for those of you who weren't here, or if you're tuning in online, or if, like me, you've had a week that maybe thinks, surely that was more than a week ago that happened, right? We've had, all had full weeks. Um, we started talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I read from verses 1 down to verse 13, and Paul reflecting the church in Corinth how he wanted them to think of him. So just to try and jog our memory a little bit, let's just read the first five verses. We're not going to read all 13 verses of the passage that are sort of under our consideration today. But 1 Corinthians chapter 4, reading from verse 1, Paul says this to the church in Corinth. A person should think of us in this way. As servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God, in this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart. And then praise will come to each one from God. We'll just leave our reading there for a moment. Even just at a a brief reading, I hope that you can pick up the fact that Paul has something in mind here for the church in Corinth, and there's a theme that comes out about judging. The way that we judge. I said last week, we we seem awfully concerned as a culture in, in our time and place, so far removed from when Paul wrote this, we're still concerned with judging. We say it to each other all the time. Or we make statements about it. It's like, don't judge me, right? Or, I didn't like that place. They were so judgy. Yeah, they, they made judgments. We, we are very concerned about judging. I think Paul has some, some helpful things to say about it here that maybe can help inform our thinking about judging. Um, the first one that we did look at last week a little bit, just to refresh our memory. Paul uses the word judge in this little passage in a few different ways. And he's not being unique. He's not being sort of a one-off way or some sort of weird way of talking about judging. We do it as well. We use the word judge, the English word judge, in lots of different ways to mean different things depending on what we're talking about. We do that with the English language a lot. Um, We use the same word in different sentences and in different contexts, and it carries different meaning. And that's the same for the word judge. And there are three particular ways that I can see the word judge being used in this passage, and I think it relates often to the way that we could use it as well. The first way comes from verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. A person should think of us in this way. Just highlight that phrase in your Bible for a moment. A person should think about us in this way. And then then Paul provides some 
parameters. He provides some boundaries for the way that he wants the people to think about him. And what he's saying is, is that I want you to evaluate our ministry. I want you to evaluate our life. He's talking about himself and his co-worker in the ministry, Apollos. Now, remember, Paul and Apollos were sort of a part of something that was going on in the church in Corinth where people were starting to divide up. They were getting into little, uh, you know, little factions, little groups that were in rivalry with each other. And it was on the basis of the fact that some of them said, listen, we think Paul is the best. And others said, we think Apollos is the best. And some said, we think Peter's the best. And some people said, we think Jesus is the best. And the point was is that they were fighting with one another over their identity, their identity. They felt better about themselves because they thought Paul was the top guy. They were evaluating him. They were judging him a certain way and using that judgment to elevate their own sense of self-worth. So now Paul wants to actually put some healthy boundaries around the way that they think. And that's, that's something that we do with each other all the time. Last week I said it's actually, in fact, a very healthy way for us to live as human beings. In fact, I don't know anyone who doesn't do this. We all evaluate our relationships 100% of the time in human life. It's the way that we're designed. It's the way that we are designed to live safe lives by evaluating what's going on around us and responding to it. Paul says, I want you to think about us in a certain way. I, I want you to judge me a certain way, evaluate me in a certain way. It's through our perception, the way that we view the world. It's an evaluation. So that's the first way that we can think about the word judge. There's a second way, though, and we get a hint of the meaning of this in verse 5. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Paul says, so don't judge anything prematurely, before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart. There's a way that we can judge one another where we conclude something. So the first way of using the word judge is to evaluate. We look at things around us. We look at the way that people act, the way that they speak, the way that they respond, and we simply evaluate Last week, I gave the analogy of an apple pie contest at the Maitland Show. All right? Everybody that wants to enter the competition makes their favourite apple pie recipe. I, not really, but I'm just going to speak this into existence, <laughs> I have been asked to come as a judge to the Maitland Show, my job is to judge the best apple pie for that year. Everyone brings their apple pies and they're laid out before me. I do not, if I'm a fair judge, declare that sample C, apple pie C, is the winner, just randomly, do I? No, I go through a process of what? Evaluation. It's the best part of the job. Smelling it, touching the crust. You know, we used to do that when my grandma made them. She'd smack you. Don't touch it. 
There's something very bad about touching apple pies before they're cool, apparently. Um, the pastry has to be just right. Then, of course, you get to cut them, you get to taste them, you're evaluating it. And we do this in life all the time and with more important things than apple pies. But from that evaluation, we start to draw conclusions. We start to formulate a way of thinking in our mind based on that evaluation. Now, this is where it gets tricky for us. Paul says, I want you to evaluate me. I want you to judge me a certain way. That's healthy and that's good. And he gives us the parameters to which to do that. But in verse 5, he says, don't judge anything. But then he adds the word prematurely. Don't judge anything prematurely, before the Lord comes. You see, we evaluate things based on what we see, what we hear, what we experience in this world. And we start to draw conclusions about them. You act in a certain way and I start to think to myself, that's because they are, and then I'm what? I'm going beyond what I've seen I've gone beyond what I've experienced and now I'm starting to draw conclusions about your life. Paul says, wow, we need to put the brakes on there. There's one thing to evaluate our experiences. It's a very different thing to start to draw conclusions about someone's life. Why? Paul says there's so much you don't know. So much that you don't know about that person. Yes, you've experienced something that they said. Yes, you've experienced something that they did. But don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in the darkness, what we cannot see, and reveal the intentions of the heart. They're things that we can't evaluate. Not easily. Not without help. And so Paul says... Be careful about the conclusions. Every human action that we can observe, there is always more to the story than we will ever know. Always. There are facts that we are ignorant of. There are conversations that we know nothing about. There are circumstances that we are blind to. And beyond even these things, there are the intentions of the heart that can't be measured or interpreted, interpreted properly by only looking at the behaviours that are on the surface. And so we can judge, evaluate, and that's good, right? That's healthy. Then we can judge by drawing up conclusions. But there's another way that we can judge. This is the way that we often think about judge in a legal sense. You know, the judge, the person who sits behind the big wooden desk with the big funny wooden hammer and passes sentence. So we can evaluate, we can conclude, but we can also condemn. And we do that as well. We do it frequently. You act a certain way, I evaluate it. 
I begin, based on the evaluations, the things that I've seen and experienced, to draw conclusions about your life, maybe about your motivation, maybe about the type of person that you are. And based on those conclusions, I then sit in judgment and I condemn. I pass sentence. I change our relationship in some way or the relationship you have with others. We can do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and uh, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 says, It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Paul's using the, the term here in that sense of sentencing. For I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by this. This is the legal language that Paul's using. He says, It is the Lord who judges me. The Lord who judges me. You see, once we've evaluated the actions and words of those around us, we begin to draw conclusions about not what they did, but why they did them. We, we draw conclusions about not what they did, but why they did it. And this leads us to make a final decision about who that person is. And how we will engage with them in the future. We either excuse them or condemn them, right? But either way, we sit in the place of a magistrate. We take the gavel, the hammer from God's hand. We strike the blow and say guilty or innocent. Paul says that's God's job, it's the Lord. Who judges? I find it interesting that in that sense there, Paul's even drawing the conclusion that, you know what, not only does it matter not a great deal what you think of me, Paul says, it doesn't even matter a great deal what I think of myself. My own judgment about whether I'm guilty or innocent doesn't even come into the equation. It is God who overrides all of it. And there's a problem with judges. There's a problem with judges. Three key ways that we can judge each other, right? Evaluation, conclusion, condemnation. They're the three ways that we can easily pass judgment on each other. And of those threes, we've, we've got very little control over the first, the evaluation. In fact, I would say it's a healthy way for us to live our life, evaluating the people around us in the sense of how we engage, what they're doing, just the facts, right? But I want you to notice how these three are linked together. My perceptions of the world, my evaluations of the world around me feed into my brain and begin to combine with all the other conclusions that I've already made. Some of those are shaped into me by the culture that I live in. Some of those are shaped by the class of society, my privileges. Some of those have to do with what education I've received, whether I've ever left the town that I was born in and seen other people doing other things in other ways, maybe. But we're shaped by all these experiences, and then I, I evaluate my world based on that. And they combine with all those other conclusions that I've made about the world that I live in. 
And these perceptions, these evaluations that I'm making, either strengthen or maybe force me to adapt the previous conclusions that I've, I've made. And once my conclusions are in place, the next step is for me to pass judgment based on my conclusions, which were in turn informed by my evaluations. And this is where we get ourselves into all sorts of problems as human beings. Because our evaluation process is flawed. So much of the conclusions that we make, so many of the sentences that we passed are first founded on the evaluation that we make of the world that we live in. But our evaluation process is flawed. How is it flawed? It's flawed because you're human. It's flawed because of our humanity. We can't see all the relevant information. We can't see the heart. We can't see the intentions. We aren't part of the entire conversation. I'm not sure if you've ever been in this experience. You probably have. It's pretty common in our part of the world at this time. Ever heard of heard someone having a conversation over the phone? You can only hear one side of the conversation. Now, often you can kind of guess what the other person's saying, right? How do we do that? You can't hear them, right? Unless you're talking, that person's talking to my dad on the phone. My... I'm on the mobile phone. Yeah, I've got to talk. You don't have to yell, Dad. We can hear you. You can't hear the other person, but you can sometimes guess what they're saying based on what? Based on one part of the conversation. Based on the person that you can hear, what they're saying, how they're saying it, how they're reacting, their body language. You can kind of guess, but you can't hear. You don't know for sure. And so often we evaluate our world around us, and it's kind of like evaluating a one-sided conversation. We're left to fill in the blanks. We only hear one side of the story. That's why Paul warns us so clearly here about making premature judgment. A judgment that arrives too early. Just in case some of you are thinking, well, Chris, the Bible says we shouldn't judge at all, right? That's what the Bible says. Don't judge. Jesus said, don't judge. And you're right. Jesus did say not to judge. Luke 6, verse 37, very clearly, Jesus says, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Very clear. What about John 7, verse 24? Jesus also says, Stop judging according to outward appearances. 
Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. Or elsewhere, Jesus says, Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their what? Fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. What's he asking us to do? Right? Evaluate. Evaluate. Don't condemn. Don't sit in judgment. That's the place of God where we pass sentence. But yes, we evaluate. We do it all the time. In fact, Jesus says, don't judge by what? The outward, just the outward, the, the superficial things, the one side of the conversation. Don't pass conclusions, don't pass sentence on that. But yes, we evaluate what's happening around us all the time. Of course we're meant to judge in the sense of evaluation. It's how we live in this world. But Paul is warning us here the same thing that Jesus warned us of that we must do so with great care and great wisdom. And this is what Paul is inviting us into here. A righteous judgment is how Jesus describes it. Paul describes it as a humble judgment. A humble judgment. Look at verse 5 again. So don't judge anything prematurely. Before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in the darkness, the things we can't see, and reveal the intentions of the heart, the motivations that are going on behind the activity that we can't recognize, and then praise will come to each one from God. Humble judgment acknowledges that I don't know everything. I don't know everything. Humble judgment acknowledges that there is information that is hidden from me and may never be seen in my lifetime. Humble judgment acknowledges that I may misinterpret an action because I've made assumptions about the intentions behind it. Yeah. Humble judgment honours the people around me by assuming the best of them. Amen. Humble judgment sees the people around me as brothers and sisters in Christ, who Christ loved enough to die for. And that they, just like you, are Lord, disciples of Jesus who are being made perfect. Just like you are being made perfect. But neither of you are perfect yet. 
It's of little importance to me, Paul says, that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not conscious of anything against myself. So often that's the way that we we'll go, well, you, it's not your place to judge me, I know myself. Paul says, even be careful with that. Even, even that sense of, well, I know myself. That, that's still thin ice. He says, your own perceptions of yourself, your own perceptions of your motivations, the own, your own perceptions of the information that many other people don't know, maybe, you sort of think, oh, if only they knew this, you know, then they would think differently. You know those things, but Paul says, even those things are not the grounds by which you will stand before God. You will stand before God on the grounds of what He knows and thinks of you. Not what you'd think of yourself. It is the Lord who judges me. Humble judgment says that we understand that we are not the judge that ultimately matters. So in this regard, it matters very little what anyone thinks of Paul or even what Paul thinks of himself because even his own evaluation, even our own self-evaluation isn't what he will be justified by. That's the language he uses. Justified, made right with God. That judgment belongs to the Lord. So where does all that lead us to? Paul wants us to identify, I think, the arrogance that lurks in our own heart. And then to take that and humbly bring it before God. Now, there's a lot more from verses 5, 6, all the way down to verse 13 that we read last week. We're not going to go through it, but I do want to highlight verse 6 for you. Paul says, Brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit. So in, in Paul's thinking, all those five verses that he's just talked about judging and how to judge and how to evaluate, the things that we need to be careful about, is I, I've applied all of those things to, to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, for the Corinthians' benefit, for our benefit. So that, here's, here's what Paul's got in mind, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant favouring one person over another. Our judgment, we often think about it in the negative context. We judge someone, we say they're bad. Or if someone's judging us, it's usually in the negative context. You know what we never have a problem with? Someone judging us when the outcome is positive. They look at our life, they look at our actions, and they just go, that guy's a rock star. And we go pretty much nailed it. <laughs> See, we don't, we don't mind so much when someone judges us if the outcome's favourable. It's only when it's not so favourable that we start having a problem with, oh, they're judgy. Don't judge me. The Bible says don't judge, right? 
Unless it's a good judgment, then knock yourself out. <laughs> Can you see the inconsistency of our own heart? The way that our arrogance starts to play into this whole process? In the Corinthians' case, they were judging people not so much by the negative but by the positive and they were saying, hey, listen, I'm looking at Paul's life. Paul is better than everybody else and because I recognise that, that makes me better than everybody else. And others said, no, 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 you're wrong. Apollos is the man. Paul writes all of this to help guard us against arrogance. Whether it's arrogance to sit in judgment over someone and condemn them to guilt, or whether it's arrogance to think that we know enough to elevate someone and put them on a pedestal. Both are arrogance. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favouring one person over another. Paul is inviting us into humility. Humility in how we think of others and humility even in how we perceive ourselves. Each one of us, as imperfect and faltering as we are, are step-by-step growing into who Jesus has created us to be. So let's be kind, right? Let's be kind with each other as we walk on that journey as disciples. There's more to the story that we can see. And we're being asked now to walk gently with each other. Now, I want you to return back to that story in Revelation again. Have you got a bookmark in it? If not, it's the last book in the Bible. You'll find it. We finished the story halfway through a verse, verse 17 of chapter 1. Paul had turned around to see this voice. Where did this voice come from, right? Uh, John, sorry. John had turned around. And he saw and then he describes. I think he's just trying to... I think John is struggling to put words to what he can see. So he's describing it in all sorts of analogies. It's like this and it was like that and it was sort of like this, but I think he's just overwhelmed. The end result is verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Maybe John could see the piercing eyes of Jesus looking straight through in, into his heart and perceiving and seeing truly all the things that John had done and seen and said and been. And, and he thought, who am I? Woe is me. I've seen the Lord. I'll surely die. That's what all the Old Testament prophets would say. And so he falls at his feet like a dead man. But then read the rest of that sentence. He, speaking about Jesus, laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead. But look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, John. Maybe this morning you've walked in here and 
You're thinking, well, yes, Chris, I do have a problem with judging other people, but, but right now I just feel like I can even barely stand in the presence of God. He must look at my life and just think, what a, what a failure. Chris, you don't know the way that I've sinned this week. You don't know the struggles that I've had. You don't know the way that I've come back to God week after week, day after day, and I, right now I feel like God must have said, I'm sick and tired of you coming to me <laughs> telling me about your failure and your sin again. Maybe this morning you would say, if if Jesus showed up here like this, like John saw him, I would just be like John. I would just fall to the ground like a dead man, like a dead woman. I cannot be in the presence of God. But I want you to hear this morning. There is only one judge who knows. And it's the judge who will extend his right hand and place it on your shoulder and say, don't be afraid. If you know Jesus like a friend, like John did, then yes, he is our judge. That's true. But not a judge we need to fear. Maybe you don't know him as a friend. Maybe Jesus is a stranger to you. You've never met him. We will all stand before him as a judge. All of us. So come now and meet him as a friend. The friend who has paid the penalty for the sin and the separation and the shame that you feel right now. And you will meet a Jesus who stands in awesome power Awesome authority. Death and Hades is in his hand. Life and death. The end from the beginning, it's all there in his hands. And he stands there in blazing glory. But if he's your friend, if he's your friend, then even if you fall in shame at his feet, he will pick you up and say, don't be afraid. That's the judge I want. I suspect it's the judge you want also. So why don't you come meet him as a friend today if you never have before? Amen. We're going to come to the table to remember him. I know I've gone a little bit, we're pushing our time a little bit, but I'm going to pray. If you know Jesus as a friend this morning, this is a way that we can come Just a simple reminder, a way of of reminding ourselves about how forgetful we are. And so we take the bread and we take the cup and they are physical things that we can hold on to and taste and drink and they point us towards a Jesus who came so that he could be friends with us so that he could make a way that we could be friends with God. Came humble, laid himself down on the altar of death for us. He will come again. He will. When he comes again, he'll come in awesome power and strength and might, and he will judge the earth, the living and the dead. So if you are his friend this morning, 
He places his hand on your shoulder and he says, do not be afraid. Come and remember me. If you don't know him this morning, then I encourage you, take this time right now. Don't feel the need to conform, to come and stand up. Just sit where you are and call out to him. Jesus, I want to meet you as a friend. Can you meet me? And he will. He will. If you do that this morning, I would encourage you, come up and chat with me or Tim or someone that you know from the church here and say, I called out to Jesus to meet me as a friend. Can you help talk with me about what that means now? We would love to do that. So as we sing, come and remember him.